Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your land. This man is my land. California. New York Island. The Redwood Forest. Gulf Stream Waters. This hand was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 440, recorded on Sunday, September 18th, 2022. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. As we record this, many listeners will be aware that the United States has been in limbo in recent days and weeks on a possible nationwide strike of railroad workers. They're currently evaluating a proposal from the Presidential Emergency Board mediators. We've talked previously on our show about various historic crises of labor relations in U.S. railroads through the 19th and 20th centuries, including a bonus episode last year that I will be releasing publicly alongside today's episode about the emergency legislation in 1916 from Congress that created the eight-hour railroad workday and astonishingly was actually held up by the U.S. Supreme Court of that era. But all of that points to a key feature of railroading labor history that has come back to prominence in the news of the current disputes. Railroad workers have traditionally worked within a completely separate system of federal laws and regulations concerning their labor rights, benefits, working conditions, and more. Even the process of a potential strike and potential resolution of the crisis is completely different from most other sectors and industries in the United States. Today on the show to explain why this came to be and what the material basis of the current dispute is, I'm joined by returning guest of the program, Justin Rosniak of the Engineering Disasters podcast, Well, There's Your Problem, who is, like me, cursed and blessed to be a rail fan and left-wing material history enthusiast. Justin, welcome back to the program. It uh, It's good to be back on. It is unfortunate to be cursed in this way, but, you know, I think more people are going to get cursed in the near future. Um <laughs> Well, we do our best. Uh, it's yeah. always important to get more people into trains, uh, very important to the history of this country and certainly to left-wing history. Uh, but let's get right into this. Before we break down the current dispute and its specific origins, what is the legal environment for any potential U.S. railroad strike like this? And why is it and why has it historically been totally distinct from almost every other aspect of U.S. labor law? Well, I, I think the, 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 the long and short of it is it's it's completely distinct because there are so many aspects of the railroad where some of these legal questions came up for the railroad well before the concept of a co- corporation had even been uh, thought about. You know, these are the, these these are extremely archaic laws which were drawn up in like the 1870s, the 1880s. You know, the, the, the railroads are the first large organized um, – thing outside of like a military um you know and they they're independent of the state they're independent of um you know any kind of control in that fashion like the the concept of having like a big corporation did not really exist before the railroads out so i have some things like uh you know the 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 east india company or something like that um, right. I mean, and, we've done a lot of directly working for state interests as opposed to the railroad, which is working for um, uh, mostly just making everyone miserable. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've done a lot of episodes on this show talking about how like the idea of interstate commerce with a very few exceptions really doesn't exist in the way we would understand it until you start getting these large multi-state operations under these railroads. And something that you've talked about on other uh, shows that you've been doing on this circuit that you're making uh, in light of recent events, and something I think we can come back to toward the end of this episode, is that a lot of these railroads were not even organized as interstate corporations initially. They were often organized as the like a, a sort of pseudo-medieval uh, fiefdom thing, like 
one guy held in personal union multiple different companies in different states, and he would own it up to the state line under this name, and then you'd cross the state line, you'd transfer to a new railroad, and that would be under a different name, but it would still be the same guy in charge of it. Ah, oh, yes. Okay, this is good. I can I can pretend I'm not using the same set of notes for every episode. Um, no, that's every podcast. I've we'll been we'll on. hit some different <laughs> notes. I think that's that's okay. Um, but yeah, you have um, you know these big railroad systems only really start to emerge in like the late 1800s. Before that, it is a sort of loose confederation of independently chartered railroads that you know by like the 1910s or the 1920s you have something that recognizably you know resembles uh one of the big railroads that you hear about that runs the streamliners but before that you know you had um in order to get from Philadelphia to Chicago on what we would now call the Pennsylvania Railroad it was actually there was a Pennsylvania Railroad then there was a separate railroad that was controlled by the same people that ran from Pittsburgh to Fort Wayne and then there was another one that ran from Fort Wayne to Chicago and these were three separate uh, entities and they were operated you know locally they 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 had some independence it was very very decentralized and it kind of had to be because you know uh, at that point not even not even all the telegraph lines had been put in let alone stuff like telephones or centralized uh, train dispatch which wouldn't come for decades and decades afterwards well and also you had like this totally different framework of the states trying to retain control over this stuff and the state governments, you know, who are mostly corrupt anyway, so defining it as control is a very loose term here, but like jurisdictionally, that would be how it would be set up. And that just makes it really challenging, uh, as, as I think you were about to explain, to, to have labor laws, um, but it also means they're going to come first in that industry compared to a lot of the other later to develop industries. Yes, and and I mean the uh, you were dealing with something which is almost entirely brand new and what a, what a labor union was and a lot of these early labor unions uh, a good one to shout out here is of course the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen um, they they emerge when unions are not a thing that exists and uh, the BLET in particular sort of started out as a fraternal organization as opposed to like a really militant labor organization it was more like okay we're we're all driving trains uh let, let let's hang out at a, a clubhouse after work um and, and the sort of the labor aspect uh comes later um now one of the things that emerges fairly quickly alongside this and this is something we've done episodes on before we've talked about the 1877 strike. We've talked about a bit about the Pullman strike, um, and we've talked about the Adamson Act, and we've talked about the nationalization of railways during World War One. Is that it's very clear, very quickly, that this is something bigger and more important than anything that's ever existed before in this country. However haphazard and chaotic these these organizations might have been in their origins and and even their operations, it was fundamental to the United States and the United States economy. This was a matter of uh, critical national economic importance, national security importance. Everything was understood to be something that they were going to have to take like a different approach to. So very early, we see the federal government handling these crises uh, between labor and, and owners, whether it was sending in federal troops in some of those cases or passing legislation that you know, benefited the workers. But what do you think this says in terms of the, the way that they approached it? I mean, they, they haven't necessarily approached other industries in this way. I think probably the closest analog would be some of the things around the ports. There's definitely been cases, especially in the Taft-Hartley era to present, where the president, you know, will intervene uh, in, in a similar kind of way. But it seems like there's a recognition here that there is something fundamentally very serious about this sector, uh, which for some reason people are not recognizing actually does continue to be that important even to this day. Yeah, it's 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 been strange to sort of watch the coverage of this, this strike, which did not happen, but I think uh, uh, inshallah will, um, you know, the next uh, in the next couple of weeks um, the, that these railroad the railroads are so important to the economy 
um, not because of dollar value, but because you got to get the coal to the power plant. You got to get the gasoline to the distributor. You got to get the grain to the flour mill. You know, I, I, everything seemed to be lowballed just because uh, I, some shippers came out and said, this is going to cost the economy $2 billion a day. And it's like, yeah, it'll cost the economy $2 billion a day until like day five when the whole country collapses. Um, so, so I feel like this is this is a big part of the reason why it, it, these these labor issues are uh, regulated differently. It's because if the railroad shut down, everything goes to shit real quick. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so something that we had talked about in our episode on the Adamson Act, which, as I said, I'll be releasing from our uh, Patreon feed to, to everyone, um, was the, that Wilson in particular really puts a stamp on this, not only with the rail nationalization in World War One, but in the lead up to this, as he knows the U.S. is going to be going into World War One, he takes the approach, which is, of course, consistent with his later uh, post-war approach of trying to set up things like the International Labor Organization, is this idea that labor peace has to be maintained, and therefore it's the duty of Congress and the president to step in on these kind of things, and not just to send in troops and crack down on the workers, but sometimes to make the owners actually make reasonable concessions. In that particular case, in 1916, this was uh, the eight-hour workday, uh, which, of course, you know, no other industry gets an eight-hour workday uh, as early as, as the railroads do. So that's a, a win in a sense. But we also talked on that episode about the idea that this is instead of having bargaining, and there's definitely some disadvantages when the government basically is stepping in and either through arbitration or through act of Congress is setting what the rules of the road are, so to speak. Especially considering they have since seeded the eight-hour workday in the rail industry. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, how, how do we, though, move from the, these early pieces of legislation, whether it's the Adamson Act in uh, 1916 or uh, we did an episode about um, rail safety devices like the air brakes being mandated by Congress in the 1890s and so forth. How do we move from that to some of the later things like the, the I think you mentioned on one of the other episodes, there's a whole different retirement system for the railroads uh, that's not part of Social Security. I think people will be familiar with that, at least in passing from when they fill out their tax forms and see a box that they don't know what it has anything to do with that says something about railroad re retirement contributions. Why is it that there's no sort of merger with the rest of labor law and, uh, you know, social benefits and working conditions laws and things like that over the course of the like the 1930s, for example, when we're seeing a lot of this emerge out of the New Deal or potentially in the 1960s with the big the. Uh, big society uh, programs of Lyndon Johnson, great society. I, uh, you, you know, I like to do I like to do sort of historical analysis when it comes to railroads because it's the only way to understand what's currently going on because so much of it is at its core institutional momentum. Um, it's just like, well, we have one system that we set up um, and it's working okay. Let, let's not mess with that because um, none of this none, none of these separate systems really ought to exist. But uh, here we are um, 90 years later, and there's just a completely different system for railroad workers. I, it's the same thing with like OSHA regulates everything except mines, which has its own thing, MSHA. Um, you know, I, also, I think the railroads are also exempt from OSHA. Um, it's kind of it's it, it, it's a weird system and there's no not really a good reason for it to exist, but it does. Um <laughs> So as we come out of the crisis of the 1970s, which is something that I've been doing a separate series on uh, when I find the time, uh, we get to 1980, we start seeing sort of quote-unquote modernizations of not only obviously U.S. rail deregulation, but then we start seeing changes to some of the, the labor laws. Um, I think that's the era when you start, you know, waving goodbye to cabooses finally and, and yes. that kind of thing. Uh, and then there's some further changes in the 1990s, something that we mentioned very briefly in our Adamson Act episode, but then didn't really develop any further was that this was this 1916 legislation was still in effect until the 1990s. Obviously, something changed at that point. So and, and you just alluded to this a, a few moments ago that that there were there were changes that happen in the late 80s, early 90s 
to labor law, you said they ceded this eight-hour workday and so forth. This is the, I guess, as I see it, and I think I think you would agree, kind of the very beginning seeds of the particular crisis that we're now seeing today, right? Uh, yes. I mean, you have you 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 have a number of developments, which I would say not so much like changes to labor law so much as changes to laws regulating the railroads that suddenly meant management had a lot more leverage to uh, extract concessions out of the unions, um, and then sort of the labor law followed. Um, so, like, okay, you start with, uh, I guess, really the Staggers Rail Act of 1980 that makes it a lot easier to uh, do stuff like abandon branch lines, to uh, demarket certain kinds of railroad traffic that you don't think are very profitable. Uh, you can do a, you can do a whole bunch of stuff there that really starts to cut costs, and it lets you shed the workforce much more easily and this means that of course uh w- once you can do that you can you can start you you can really start turning the thumb screws on the unions and say hey um let's go down to two man crews from five man crews or hey uh may- maybe maybe we can have you on call a lot more as opposed to doing this 8 hour day stuff you know it's a lot easier to run a train now than when it than when it was a steam locomotive you know stuff like that you just sort of like chip away at the edges over a period of time um and 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 the 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 net result was uh rail workers lost a lot of progress over a relatively short period of time and they they must not as you said have had the leverage to push back on that yeah i mean you were in very much an austerity mindset everyone was in an austerity mindset um because the railroads it looked like it looked like the future was not very good for quite a long time, um, and you you had a, a very much a contraction mindset for everyone involved. I mean, uh, you, uh, from executives down to the unions, to, to everyone was like, "Well, gee, this is uh, this is not as good as it was, huh? Nothing, nothing good's going to happen to the railroad ever again." Uh, despite the fact that you know by the '90s, um, railroads would be making record profits and moving, you know more stuff than ever compared to how much track they had. But uh, the the 70s through like the late 80s were a bad time. <laughs> right. And I think it's it fits with the broader theme of the crisis of the 70s, which I've been talking about on those uh, specific episodes, which is that the crisis itself was in many ways not actually that bad. The real like net bad result was everyone convincing themselves as you said, from the highest levels on down to the base levels, that everything was about to be bad and could never possibly get better, which then triggered a whole bunch of decisions that in the short term were at at best shooting yourself in the foot, but in the long run were fundamentally restructuring the economy in ways that it was, you know, you were going to get a bunch of value out in a short period of time. You might be able to you know, catch a second wind on certain things, but not in a way that anybody thought was permanent. And then here we are, like you said, with media coverage still to this day, treating railroads like they're some sort of archaic afterthought that's not really part of the U.S. economy. We come out of this period with this complete framework of, you know, profits are always going to be in decline. The end of the line is coming for everything. Railroads are going the way of the dodo, etc., uh, and then what happens instead that gives the railroads uh, a kind of a new lease on life, at least for a while? All right. So I, if I had to say there's one event in the 70s, which is sort of emblematic of how uh, the railroads operate and really change the course of both the railroads and, you know, put us into our situation right now. It was when um, the Burlington Northern Railroad. Uh, decided to build a new main line into the Powder River Basin in Wyoming. Um, And this was to, they had just discovered coal there, a whole load of coal. It wasn't very good coal, um, but it becomes better later. Um, And this is, this is like, um, this is a, a decision which is met by the shareholders with a complete, you know, revolt. They were like, no, you can't invest any money in anything. That's a terrible idea. Why would you do that? Um, despite the fact that, of course, coal is the most profitable traffic a railroad can handle because it, 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 it's very, very easy to work with. It does not complain. 
Um, right. It's not going to die on a cattle it's, car like the, you know. Exactly. It's, uh, you know, it's it's been in the ground for a couple million years. Uh, if it sits in the siding for a week, it's fine. Um, <laughs> so they build this. Uh, there's a shareholder revolt over over this. A whole bunch of people like resign from Burlington Northern's board of directors. I want to say after after they vote to do it. It's the single most profitable investment that any railroad has ever made, um, and it generates uh, just a load of traffic, especially after 1999. But this is that this this Wyoming coal sort of starts to change the face of the railroads after like uh, 1999, when the EPA puts in some really strict regulations around sulfur dioxide emissions, and all of a sudden it's a lot cheaper to burn this Wyoming coal than to burn Appalachian coal which, uh, you know, it, it has a higher energy density but has much more sulfur, uh, requires a more extensive, expensive stack scrubber. Um, so this, this is something which really changes the face of the railroad industry, and it, it generates loads of traffic, which goes everywhere. I mean, you, 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 there's, there's places using Wyoming coal that are as far as, like, the Jersey Shore from Wyoming, so this is this is a big this is a big thing that really changes how railroads operate. They suddenly make loads of money from these really cheap uh, long haul coal trains. You know, so it, it, you're in a completely different environment than you expected to be in by the 1990s. And how does this affect railroading in terms of profits and so forth? Oh, they make loads of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and did any of this flow to the labor? Uh, sort of. Um, I, I would say sort of in that by 2004, uh, they were so swamped with traffic that they go on one of the largest hiring sprees in railroad history. Class one railroads, I want to say hire 80,000 people in the year in 2004, um, which is, you know, just 18 years ago. Um, but sort of simultaneously to this, you have, um, this, this idea bubbling through the industry called precision scheduled railroading right um and and the idea of precision scheduled railroading it it comes from this guy e hunter harrison um the theory is that rather than you know traditional railroading where you want to ship some freight let's say i'm shipping from boston to chicago or somewhere you know you would uh you would take a freight car you put it on a freight train that goes from boston to selkirk new york you sort it through a yard you you put up you put that car on another train that's going from Selkirk to I don't know Enola Pennsylvania or Fort Wayne Indiana you 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 uh you classify the car again then you ship it to Chicago now you would run a direct train um right you you have uh you have a a planning department at your railroad which you know would sort of target different bottlenecks on your system for infrastructure improvements. You'd run the trains faster. You run the trains hopefully on time, better. You'd have uh, since you wouldn't be running trains uh, arbitrarily. You'd everything would be on a schedule. Uh, your workforce would have a more consistent schedule. You know all kinds of all kinds of nice things were supposed to happen from precision scheduled railroading. Um, and, and, and the reality is uh, a little a little different, I would say. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is not something that panned out in the in the everyone wins scenario that you've just painted. Yes. Um, so if you are a locomotive engineer, you start off when you start your job on the extra board, right? The extra board is like you get the shit work. You get uh, if you are. Uh, uh, a junior engineer, essentially the railroad, it used to be they would call you up at any time to run a train that they just felt like they had to run that day. That That's the extra board, right? Because uh, you run extra trains. Those ones don't run on schedules. You get more seniority. You get moved to a pool where you're consistently running from one terminal to another terminal. Um, you know, you, you run from your home terminal to your away terminal, and that's like just the same same one every day. Um, and then if you, you know, if you got a lot of seniority, that's when you got the scheduled trains, and the scheduled trains make your life a lot easier. Um, so uh, this is how it used to work, and the idea was you would run more scheduled trains, everything would be more predictable, you'd have more better equipment utilization. Uh, 
it, it would make everyone's lives easier. But the reality was much different because we had this unfortunate thing happen called technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so railroads, uh, especially, um, not even so much in the nineties. I, I mean, so much of what's what, what, what the current dispute is over is stuff that happened in like the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, is the railroads start running much, much longer trains because they invent something called a distributed power unit, um, which has existed since the 60s, but was only really mass adopted now. You stick a locomotive in the middle of the train. Uh, it's controlled by radio from the front. Uh, that means you can run much, much longer trains without having crazy uh, in-train forces that try and derail it. Um, you have... Uh, uh, so So... Train, train size suddenly went from like 100 cars to 250 cars, um, and uh, it, it's unwieldy when you're holding the trains in the yard so long that in the name of precision scheduled railroading, trains run at arbitrary times all the time. Everyone has terrible schedules. It's really bad right now. Um, yeah, it's not the most precise. To paraphrase Voltaire, neither precision nor scheduled nor railroading. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, this is the thing that um, I think, like, you know, even before this particular strike came up, I had kind of been following this stuff, especially because CSX kept having mounting strife between their workers and their executives and uh, and the shareholders and so forth by extension. A lot of the workers were saying this is a terrible way to run a railroad. Stuff is not getting to where it needs to go on time. And yes. it's just sitting there. In some sense, it's making you in the short term more money, but in the long run, you're going to be losing customers, you're going to lose subscriber, etc. They have very much been losing subscriber, and the, this is one of the things about uh, the way the modern railroad is run. So there's something called the operating ratio, and the operating ratio is, uh, okay, for every dollar of income that we have, we spend this many cents on actually running the railroad, and then the rest of it goes to dividends or executive pay or stuff like that. Um, it used to be a good operating ratio was 80%. 80 cents on the dollar goes to running the railroad. They've driven that down to 60%. Now, this is at the expense of the actual income of the railroad because um, they stopped trimming fat probably 15 years ago and really started trimming bone and muscle. Mm-hmm. I already went through a lot of the muscle earlier, but uh, but there 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 this is all this is all cutting and cutting and cutting. Um, but you're now down to an operating ratio like sixty percent, and it doesn't matter if the railroad's half the size. That's a much better return on investment. So it it's um it it, it, it it's a the, the railroads are a much more attractive investment now, at the expense of actually being good at what they do. Um, <laughs> right. The the fundamental and longstanding tension, as I think we'll circle back to, between uh, the railroad as a financial vehicle and the railroad as an actual literal vehicle that is moving yes. goods from one side <laughs> of the country to the other. Yeah. And this is um, so you you have uh, th- this precision scheduled railroading thing um, is uh, it, it's it's destroying everyone's lives because. Again, everyone's on call 24-7 now. Um, you have days off that you can theoretically schedule, but um, the railroads want you to schedule them like months in advance and can cancel them with like a day and a half's notice. Um, so in reality, no one has days off on the railroad anymore. Um, and So at this point, what does it look like to be a typical railroader uh, trying to work under these conditions. What is that that work not only day but work week look like, and and how does that differ from basically almost any other sector, even like sectors that are not particularly uh, well treated or compensated? So you are theoretically on call, basically all the time, about ninety percent of the time. Prior to that, it was, you know, I I think people said uh, even like ten years ago you were. At worst, on call about seventy-five percent of the time, which gives you that gives you the equivalent of a weekend. Railroaders don't have weekends anymore. Um, you're sort of you could be expected to show up with an hour and a half's notice, 
to work, to take a train to any arbitrary place, um, and that might take eight or twelve hours uh, of your time just to uh, to take the train to the next terminal, uh, and then you're going to be put up in a hotel, um, and then sometime within the next 24 hours, hopefully you get to take a train back. Uh, but you have, this is like you're 36 hours away from home and 12 hours at home. Now, in effect, you do have days off. You just don't know you had the day off until after it happens. Um, <laughs> so there's some similarity there to a zero hours contract worker, I think. Um, but obviously some distinctions as well. I've heard a lot in the the coverage of this, at least, that has actually talked to workers that things that basically anybody else would take for granted, like you said, uh, weekends or being weekend. able to schedule a doctor's appointment or anything like that is not just not in the cards. Up, not having to wake up at one o'clock in the morning randomly. Um. And if you don't pick up that phone... That causes very serious problems for quite a while on your like corporate record, right? Yes, uh, the, the they have. Uh, it's it's hard hard to imagine a corporation in 2022 being more disciplinarian than in like 1922. But it, it's sort of where you are at this point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, what are some of the other things that we've been seeing? in the run-up to this in terms of um, things that people are in the broader economy are maybe feeling the effects of with the way that railroading is changing that they might not even realize are related to that, right? Because we've been hearing all this discussion about supply chains and things like that. What are some of the implications? I know there's been a lot of disparate sort of coverage that I think misses the story on that, right? Like, oh, you know, this railroad is losing customers because of things sitting in the yard, or this railroad is having packages stolen off a train in their not even yard. What are some of the, the things that are happening in railroading that do affect everyone, not just people who actually work for the railroads? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I feel like, you know, the, the back end of the supply chain is something that no one has noticed until recently. Um, but with the railroads being as dysfunctional as they are, there's so much traffic which has just been ceded to trucks. There's more and more trucks on the road. Um, if you, uh, you know, railroads have picked up a lot of slack in terms of moving containers around, but even that has been uh, pretty dysfunctional. Like if you look at, um, if you live in Chicago, let's say, uh, Chicago is a good example here. Uh, there's a lot of railroads with container terminals there, and um, because it's complicated to switch those container cars, they just offload all those containers on the truck and then they drive them through residential neighborhoods to the other container terminals where they're loaded back on a train. Um, you know, there's a lot of like laziness from uh, from a railroad operations standpoint, which ha has sort of happened as a result of the uh, the PSR uh, precision scheduled railroading mindset. Uh, you you have. Uh, I, I don't know how much, I, again, the, the, the irritating thing is how much of this is like stuff you're only going to get mad at if you are really paying attention to what's happening. Because, you know, ultimately it doesn't matter to the consumer if, if the freight gets there on a truck or a train. Uh, but it does matter sort of in terms of like the environment or like the, uh, you know, the, um, you know, just having fewer trucks on the road and stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> Well, but, you know, there there are ways that people might not realize consciously were affecting their lives, but but it actually is, uh, and I think it's worth bringing some uh, attention to that. I, I know you've talked about safety issues in terms of where trains are running, uh, safety okay, issues yeah. in terms of derailments and things like that, safety issues in terms of the uh, thefts of, of train cargo. Yeah, so one of your, one of your big, big, I guess... Uh, unheard of things right now is uh, what you might call the derailment epidemic. Um, so uh, we invented these monster trains, right? Now there's uh, there's other technology which is sort of causing this to occur. Uh, a big one is that the railroads have invented, uh, not the railroads, but the, the, the locomotive manufacturers have invented these sorts of uh, driver assist programs. Uh, call it, it's, it's, um, 
somewhere between Tesla full self-driving beta and like Clippy for trains, right? Right. Um, and and so the idea is there's two big systems. One of them is called Trip Optimizer, um, and that like has like a bunch of uh, trade routes that have been manually programmed in. Um, the other one's called Leader, and that is a machine learning system, um, which has been trained on simulators. Uh, so, you know, it's like we, we, we forced the bot to play 9,000 hours of Microsoft Train Simulator. Let's see how it does on the real Marias Pass, right? Um, and these, these systems, they're supposed to increase fuel economy, but... The, 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 the sort of the, the railroad executives, the management has told uh, workers that like, okay, you have to let trip optimizer or leader do its thing. Um, if you take manual control over, uh, you might be disciplined for it. And, and these systems are, they're not perfect. And because the trains are so long now, there's so much in train forces. Um, the, 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 the driver assist frequently puts itself in a situation where it may split or derail the train if it's allowed to do what it wants to do. Um, and this is uh, not directly resulted in, I mean, there's a couple derailments that are caused by this. I, I won't say it's uh, directly responsible for most of the derailments, but you are putting workers in the situation where they have to choose between being disciplined or derailing their train. Um, <laughs> But the long trains in general are, are very much a, uh, a factor in causing all these derailments, and they're happening in worse and worse places all the time. Like Norfolk Southern put a, they put a coal train on the ground on the Northeast Corridor a couple months ago. Uh, it was a really bad derailment, and that's a 135-mile-an-hour railroad. Um, and I, for some reason, it, it barely made the news. It wasn't like a national scandal. Mm -hmm. uh, if there had been an Amtrak train anywhere near there, it would have killed Two, three hundred people. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. What are some of the other safety issues that are uh, facing uh, the trains, the railroaders, people who live near trains? I mean, you know, everyone's hauling crap loads of hazmat. Uh, that's what the railroads are for because it's safer to ship that way. Uh, it, it's probably uh, railroads are probably the second safest way to ship hazmat after pipelines. Um, the uh, which of course have their own problems. Um, you have, of course, just the, the these long trains. It's hard to stop them. Um, the railroads have started pushing for one man crews, which uh, it, it is is bad news if you let's say you live in a small town in Quebec called uh, Lac Megantique. Mm -hmm. um, Check out that episode of Well, There's Your Problem to find out more about that. Is, is you're having you. It's 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 just I don't know the 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 whole thing is wild. It's it's crazy to think that they want to put one guy in charge of three miles of train, um, yeah, with with no one around, um, and even stuff like just okay these trains go slower than ever, uh, they're bigger than ever, they block grade crossings for a long time, you know, which is bad news if uh, I don't know maybe you're in an ambulance, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so. Let's imagine that the railroad companies completely get their way here. They not only win this showdown, but they get everything handed to them by Congress or the president or whoever. They get to run the railroads how they want. What are we looking at here in terms of a, you know, multi-mile long train run by one guy who's been on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, has probably had to get up in the middle of the night unexpectedly to, to operate this train. What are we, what are we looking at here for the future of this critical artery to the U S economy and supply chain? I would say if the railroads got everything they wanted, there would be no railroad. Mm -hmm. um, the, the ideal railroad is one that owns no track and runs no trains. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not a. It's it. This business has been, I, I would say, for a long time of its existence. But like, uh, especially in the past like twenty years, this this industry is suicidal. Um, it wants to stop existing. Uh, now, the, if you have one guy operating these long trains, um, I. I don't doubt there's a way. It would take a while 
for something really bad to happen. But when a really bad thing happened, it would be really bad. Um, but I also think if the railroads got everything they wanted, they would wind up going. It, 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 it's completely unsustainable for them to operate in the way they've been operating. And to k- keep going down this road is madness because you you simply would not run a railroad at some point. I, I mean, right. railroading's not a good business to be in. Um, it's not like, you know, right now, wh- what do you want to do right now to make money? I make an app that makes a fart noise and make a billion dollars. That's much easier than running a railroad where you're in the unfortunate position of actually having to do things, which is really bad economics right now. Right. <laughs> they're going to lose subscriber. They're going to lose worker because people are quitting in droves under these working conditions. Mm-hmm. And I think this this highlights a key, a key point as well that we as leftists want to make, which is like, it is possible to operate a railroad that is providing a vital service and maybe even making some amount of money. It is not the same thing, though, as like you just said, a really high margin company that's going to be just printing enormous sums of money forever. The railroads are doing pretty well right now. They're making billions of dollars and so forth. But, you know, the crude oil, that's not going to go forever. The coal is not going to go forever. Even even though they've now pivoted on getting more of that shipping container traffic that for decades they, <laughs> they tried to avoid getting in the first yes. place. Uh, you know, that there is a difference between, and this is, I think goes back to that fundamental point of the crisis of the seventies. The crisis of the seventies in many ways was not, everything is going to be horrific from here on out. It was everything in capitalism is no longer going to be astronomically profitable. And even the slightest decline in profit, uh, as the great economist says, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall, even that was an unacceptable crisis, and it was time to just start basically selling everything off. And as you said, this has been kind of one of the fundamental tensions in railroading from the beginning is it is possible to run a successful railroad if you define success in terms of, you know, it can pay its operational costs and workers and so forth to transport goods from point A to point B successfully. That is not necessarily the same definition of success as the capitalist owners, shareholders, et cetera, define it as. And that's especially true after the shareholder revolution of the 1980s, where everything is about quarterly profits, stock buybacks, you know, X, Y, and Z. Again, it's been a problem through all of railroading history in the United States. You can look at the era where all of the railroads kept paying out dividend after dividend in enormous volumes to their shareholders while not doing any track maintenance until, you know, you start seeing the average speed on these tracks declining precipitously till it's practically a crawl. And they are just constantly willing to repeat that cycle. If you wanted to actually operate a railroad in a functional manner, you know, and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do it at a huge loss or anything like that. You could probably break even on it or better. It, that requires you to have a different motive in mind than quarterly profits and shareholder buybacks and things like that. I, I will say there, there's absolutely no risk of American railroads running at a loss right now. Right. Um, but but the amount that what they've done in pursuit of profits has been incredibly stupid and counterproductive. I mean, you have you have track out there that's good for 60, 70 miles an hour and they run freight trains at 20 miles an hour because that's what the fuel economy optimizer wants you to do. Um, <laughs> right. You you save like, what, 5% of fuel by running it at half speed or whatever, and then you've created a whole bunch of downstream problems for your alleged precision scheduling? At, everything is so congested right now. It's terrible. Um, you're, you're calling people up at 1 a.m. in the morning to get ask them to go on a train and sit at a red signal for six hours, and they have to just sort of stare ahead and not fall asleep because, of course, there's an inward-facing camera on the train. If you fall asleep while you're not doing anything, they're going to get mad at you. Um, it's it, 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 it's a crazy environment to be working in, and it's a crazy environment. It, it's, it's just absurd that they have let it get this bad. Um. And especially because, you know, some of these people who run these railroads have no idea how railroads work, but some of the people who were involved in this definitely know how railroads work and have a lot of experience. I mean, even the Dark Prince himself, Hunter Harrison, who sort of more or less pioneered precision scheduled railroading, 
I mean, he was he had many faults and and evil things, but you can't dispute that he came up through the railroad like he had railroading experience, but that didn't apparently stop him from making decisions that were not in the best interest of operating a railroad successfully. I would say that for all the flaws of the railroad, and there are many of them, they do trend, tend to promote from within. Um, you know, you're, you're more likely to go from locomotive engineer to management than you are going from Starbucks barista to Starbucks management. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, it, yeah, it, with with that context, it's even weirder that they make all these boneheaded uh, decisions. I uh, This is another institutional momentum thing. I mean, you know, I, if you look at, I don't know, let's say a railroad like Union Pacific, it's been around since the 1850s. It's like, it, it, what organizations are older? Like the Catholic Church and not much else. Um, <laughs> right. Well, uh, let's close the loop a little bit on uh, a, a point that I brought up at the beginning this differentiated process legally, what, what is the, the current process in terms of when a union uh, is ready to go on strike or a railroad is ready to do a lockout or some combination of the two? What is it that happens? And it's not the same process that you would get with basically almost any other sector with the possible exception of maybe like the port facilities and so forth. You get this federal intervention that's uh, very different from other sectors. Yeah, I tried to understand it, and it my brain just went to static. That's the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's there's so many steps. I mean, just because this is this is archaic regulation. The last time it was put into force was in 1992, um, and uh, HW just decided, no, you can't strike. Um, you know, the 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 Railway Labor Act is uh, there. There's this like million step process in order for railroad workers to be legally allowed to strike. Um, and that's what resulted in our current, uh, uh, the presidential emergency board, which went and made some reg, uh, recommendations for the unions and management to consider, uh, which turned out to be very bad recommendations. Mm-hmm. Um, they gave, they gave the, uh, the unions a pay increase, but what the unions wanted was of course, uh, actual time off they could use. Um, and, you know, since then, um, there's been this tentative agreement, which in, in, includes some time off, but uh, who knows if they'll accept or reject it. But I mean, it is—it's a completely separate process uh, from the usual, you know, uh, the, the 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 usual labor striking process, and it's weird. It's just weird. I <laughs> constant cooling off periods at various stages so that everything just drags out even longer with more uncertainty. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's also, that's counterproductive. I don't think anyone's cooling off right now. I, I don't, I am not a railroad worker. I do not speak for the rank and file. I have seen some people very mad about the, um, the agreement that's been come to because there's no guarantee, even if they do get more time off railroads, are really good at de- denying time off. Um, so even if they get more time off on paper, they might not actually get time off. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, before we wrap up, I do want to have one, uh, fun historical anecdote that we can discuss. This is one that I've been waiting uh, for a good opportunity to do on the show, but it wasn't really like a full episode length. Uh, so we're going to go back in time to, uh, not the earliest days of railroading history, but that era that you mentioned earlier, the 1870s, 1880s. And we're going to talk about uh, a section from The Road of the Century. Is that a book that you've read? It seems like a book you might have read. That's one about the... It's a New York Central history. So that's why I haven't read it. Yeah, I was was worried about bringing up a sensitive topic like the New York Central, but uh, here we go. So uh, on one of the other podcast appearances that you made, uh, and uh, you made some comparisons to some of the ways in which railroads have been run uh, in a similar manner to uh, kind of scammy tech startups. Uh, And this was... Uh, something that had definitely been in my mind when I read this uh, chapter uh, of this book a couple years ago. Um, it's also, I think, definitely calls to mind um, private equity uh, asset stripping and debt leveraging and things like that from the Romney-Bain uh, Capital era uh, much later. Basically, it comes out of that a century later for other sectors. Uh, so we're going to talk about uh, Calvin S. Bryce, often rendered as Calvin Dollar Sign Bryce, uh, and, and in this chapter uh, from the road of the century. So 
this is one of his many scams. So Bryce was one of the, uh, there were a lot of these guys who were Civil War veterans, in his case, uh, one of the child soldier Civil War veterans, uh, who turned into uh, lawyer slash finance guys uh, after the Civil War. And he had a knack for doing uh, the sort of railroad fundraising version of traveling medicine shows. Uh, and he did this along with uh, his, his business partner, uh, future Ohio governor and disastrous U.S. Treasury Secretary, uh, Charles Foster Jr. Uh, and, and together they uh, made a hostile takeover of an already bankrupt railroad startup. Uh, there were obviously a lot of these littering the country at any given point, but especially after yes. <laughs> recent panics. Uh, and so over the course of the 1870s, very slowly, with a lot of legal shenanigans, uh, Bryce reorganizes this railroad. And the whole time that he's doing this reorganization, he and Foster uh, are uh, going all over the state of Ohio and I think places like Indiana and so forth, but but mostly focusing in Ohio. And they're aggressively raising funding from municipal bonds for infrastructure development. They would often take a 50% sales commission on the sale of these bonds. Uh, and so the the idea was that these all these county governments and city governments and town governments have been authorized to issue bonds and you could sell them uh, to basically just raise money uh, for building a railroad and this was going to somehow generate economic value for the town and so forth. That was the theory anyway. Obviously didn't really work out that way in most cases. Uh, the other place that they were aggressively fundraising from was Wall Street stock speculators via the so-called Sini Syndicate. Uh, and they were raising from these two sources an amount of money that obviously could never realistically be paid back. I mean, this was just transparently obvious. They did not really take any pains to hide this. Uh, and Bryce paid himself a boatload of money out of this, including those 50% commissions. And nice. after he's uh, reorganized this railroad, he actually does build a railroad. This is the craziest part of the scam and one part that you would never see in the modern context is actually building the thing that you said you were going to build. Uh, and he <laughs> and some of his scams involved really barely doing the work to legally say that you had built a railroad. But in this case, he built like a pretty functional railroad. So he built uh, the Nickel Plate Railroad. Um, as fast as possible before its inevitable bankruptcy, because as I said, it could never possibly repay the amount of money that they had raised uh, from various sources to, to pay for this. Uh, and he built it deliberately as a direct next door competitor to the Lakeshore Railway. And that was part of Vanderbilt's network of legally separate railroads that were in a personal union under his control, dominated by the New York Central. So the risk of this competition from this new nickel plate line uh, forced Vanderbilt to buy the nickel plate just to keep it from being used to undercut shipping rates on his own line, especially if it entered receivership, which had even lower rates. And Vanderbilt couldn't even get a particularly amazing deal on the purchase, even though it was about to be bankrupt, because the Pennsylvania Railroad was also potentially interested in buying the line, too. And again, this was all done very much out in the open. Bryce was not hiding this fact. At one point, someone said, you know, well, your railroad's on the verge of bankruptcy and receivership. And he was just like, yes, exactly. So what are you going <laughs> to do about it? Um, so the nickel plate scheme was... Far from Bryce's only scam, although, as I said, it did at least produce a reasonably usable rail line, uh, unlike some of the other scams. Uh, a lot of those scams, he would do the minimum work required to legally be able to, like, keep the bond money and not have it get taken back by the courts. Um, you know, so you just really throw up the bare minimum of what could be described as a railroad, and you would probably not be able to operate a train over it. Foster, his business partner, notably continued to be a co-investor in Bryce's various scam railroads, even while literally serving as governor of Ohio. And Bryce himself certainly did not give up his railroad investments during his one term as a U.S. senator for Ohio, which, like many of his peers of that era, he easily purchased from the state legislature. And he also served as DNC chair prior to being a senator. And one kind of interesting uh, note there is that uh, one of them was a Democrat, one of them was a Republican, certainly didn't stop them from working together on a lot of other projects. I think at one point, Foster ran against, uh, in the governor's race, one of their other business partners. Um, they were uh, also on opposite sides there. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, Foster, whose specialty, this was like how he became a politician, was he would be one of the ones going around doing these bond sales from town to town, kind of promoting, hey, you know, if you invest in this, it's going to bring all this value to your town and that kind of thing. Uh, he, he, you know, translates that into this 
you know, political network and patronage thing and that sort of thing. And he moves his way up uh, to be governor of Ohio. But eventually he becomes treasury secretary uh, when and he notoriously serves as treasury secretary during what is about to become the panic of 1893. And at that point, this was when uh, the inaugurations didn't happen until March. So he sat from November of 1892 all the way through the beginning of March of 1893 as Treasury Secretary doing absolutely nothing, including apparently going and getting his official portrait painted. Uh, he decided that was a, a better use of his time than stepping in to save the economy, which then proceeds to crash and uh, is no longer uh, his president's problem because that administration is out of there. So anyway, I just thought this was an interesting anecdote because it not only shows you the way that a lot of these railroads were set up uh, to begin with, but it also shows you how far ahead of the curve they were in terms of like these tech startup style scams, the uh, private equity rating, the debt and credit lines of these institutions and so forth. Uh, just a, a fascinating anecdote that goes to show what a colossal mess uh, capitalism has made of this uh, vast network of railroads in the United States that some people bewilderingly insist on referring to as the best freight network in the world, which I don't think can be defended on basically any terms. I, I was about to say, the, well, the nickel plate road was definitely a magnet for weird guys. That's true. Um, yeah. I think the the weirdest, of course, being Oris Paxton Van Swearingen and Mantis James Van Swearingen, who... Uh, Two very cool and normal brothers. Very, very, very normal brothers. Very much, um, uh, I, I would describe them as, uh, they're like a wealthier version of the McPoyles from uh, It's Always Sunny. Um, <laughs> All right, well, uh, Justin, that is going to bring us to time. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about uh, railroad labor laws and the material basis of the current uh, labor dispute and potential strike action on the railroads. Are there any closing thoughts or closing plugs that you want to make before we let you go? I mean, the main thing is I hope the uh, I, I hope there is some more radical labor action that happens because I, I, I feel like, okay, the agreement that's been come to is okay-ish, but I think the railroads are, uh, again, they are they, if they think they're going to win, by pushing down workers as far as they have and by doing these horrible operating practices, we're just not going to have a railroad in a couple of years. <laughs> I, I think it's that this is like a, maybe more of a do or die situation than, than anyone realizes. Like these railroads have been so badly run for mm -hmm. so long. Something's got to give at some point. I don't know what it will be. Um, I guess the other alternatives that don't seem on the horizon are full nationalization and yeah. uh, some sort of uh, anarcho-syndicalist operation where the railroad workers who actually know how to run a railroad take over and run it. But it doesn't seem exactly. like either of those are in the cards, so we better hope for a better resolution than the uh, tentative agreement that's proposed. Well, you know, only Nixon can create Conrail. Mm -hmm. um. <laughs> yeah, and Mr. I Love Trains himself, President Biden, doesn't seem to be, I mean, I don't know what's going on there. I don't think he's the one that's making any of the decisions with regard to this at all. It seems like he's out of the picture, asleep at the I switch. Heard, I heard that essentially the presidential emergency board came up with the whole agreement, and then Biden heard, what do you mean you're not giving them days off? And then he sort of intervened at the last second. Anyway, that could be that could be propaganda too. I I'm, I'm not going to give him that much credit, hmm. but maybe maybe he did something. I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> All right. Well, Justin, where can people find more of your work? And uh, you know, what are what are some of the other podcasts on the circuit that you've been hitting? Um. So I do a podcast called Well, There's Your Problem. It is a podcast about engineering disasters with slides. Um, it's on YouTube and wherever fine podcasts are sold. Um, I've also uh, gone on a couple podcasts to cover this. I was on This Machine Kills. I was on Work Stoppage Podcast. Uh, next week, I'm going on Rail Natter. That's with Gareth Dennis. And we're going to, he, he is a professional um, permanent way, which we would call right of way here. Uh, he's a permanent way engineer in uh, Britain. And we are going to really nerd out on the decline of the American railroad industry over the past 60 years. That's what that's that's the one. If you want to get 
really bored. That's the one to watch. No, really <laughs> interested. And then <laughs> gradually your mouth will fill up with foam. Yes. Yeah, yeah. you have to, you have to go, uh, go get a rabies vaccine afterwards, you know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Justin, it's been too long, but it was great to have you back on Arsenal for Democracy. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me again. I'm always around to talk about trains. Well, always here me to too. talk. I don't talk think everyone's yeah. ear off about trains. <laughs> Nobody who's into trains is is ever unavailable to talk about trains. So yeah. that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> All right. See you around. Okie dokie.